We don't know her name, but her reputation will never be forgotten. We don't know her husband's name either, but his great admiration and deep appreciation for her has been recalled for millennia. She is described as an excellent wife whom her husband trusts implicitly. She might also be described as a very modern and successful woman living in an ancient world. As indicated in her impressive resume, this amazing woman was a quintessential entrepreneur with a wide range of business ventures, either envisioned or in full-scale operation. She was both a buyer and manufacturer of textile materials and products, not only directing operations, but also working with her hands in the company of her employees. And she did so with delight, which means that she loved her work. It appears that this woman might have been a produce broker too, since she imported food products. She rose early to feed and care for the needs of her household before leaving to manage other business operations, including real estate sales and property development. If all that were not enough, this industrious powerhouse still had time to care for the poor and needy while not neglecting the members of her household, who were always well-dressed and cared for in every way. Of course, all this means that she was a very capable money manager as well. And did I not mention the fact that she was also a teacher of both philosophy and ethics? Is it any wonder, then, that her husband praised her and her children blessed her? In fact, the husband of this wonder woman was respected because of his wife, whose character and accomplishments made him look really good. So who is this person? Why, she is the grand lady of Proverbs 31. Just because women have been repressed and marginalized over the past 2,000 years does not mean that it was always so in antiquity. In the Greco-Roman world, women were legally subordinate to men, and sadly, that legacy endures to this day. So, with regard to the question of a woman's place in the church and world, shall we consider first what God has to say in his word, or what man has to say throughout the course of human history? It seems to me that beginning in the beginning is the place to start. So let's turn to Genesis 1. Bear in mind that Genesis presents two accounts of creation which are different, but not in conflict. You could say that they complement each other, with Genesis 1 presenting creation in its fullness, and Genesis 2 focusing only on the man and the woman, where the words he and she appear frequently. Conversely, the distinction of male and female does not appear in chapter 1. Consider verse 26, where God says, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. It's important to note that the Hebrew word Adam may refer to one man in particular or to mankind in general. In this context, Mankind would be a good translation based on what follows in verse 27, where we read, male and female, he created them. 
This is the only reference to male and female in Genesis 1, as the focus is on them, not on he or she. Notice also that God presents himself as a corporate being by saying, let us create. Therefore, if the triune God who exists eternally as a community of equals, Father, Son, and Spirit, if this God created human beings in his image, does it not follow that both males and females were created to experience life in community as equals? In the Bible, God presents himself as the eternal one who transcends his creation. The creator is not a sexual being as we are, even though God has been addressed as father throughout history and referred to as he, not she. Bearing that in mind, it's worth noting that God presents himself throughout the Bible in terms and with images that are both masculine and feminine. For instance, listen to a few select passages of scripture, noticing the use of metaphors that describe God from perspectives that are both male and female. Job chapter 38 verses 28 and 29 says, Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whom's womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost in heaven? Notice the male and female roles. Psalm 123 verse 2 says, As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. God is a master and mistress. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 3 and 4. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. And further into Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15, God says, Can a nursing woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. It appears that God displays character qualities that are both feminine and masculine. Perhaps we should view our creator more as a heavenly parent who does not only act like a father to us, but as a mother as well. At this point in our endeavor to determine what the Bible says about a woman's place, it may seem that the place of a woman is the same as that of a man, both in the world and in the church. However, before drawing a conclusion too quickly, let's turn to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul gives this directive. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. 
Now, with just those three verses in view, what does the Bible say about a woman's place in relation to a man's place? Does it not say that women are subordinate to men? And for those who think that this is simply Paul's opinion, notice that the apostle cites Genesis to support his directive about a woman's place in the church. Are you perplexed? Before attempting to interpret what Paul is saying in these verses, keep in mind these three things. Context, context, and context. Moving from greater to lesser, we must start with the biggest context before us, which is the person of Paul and the letters attributed to him in the New Testament. As indicated previously in part one of this series, in letters like Romans and Galatians, Paul states that men and women are equal before God. He honors women personally and even names one as outstanding among the apostles. The next level of context to consider is the particular book in view, which in this case is 1 Corinthians. Like any one of us, whether we are writing to a person or a group of people, what we say takes into consideration particular issues that are unique to a particular person or group. Therefore, to properly interpret 1 Corinthians, we must know something about the city of Corinth. At that time, the background of the church in that city, and the issues that prompted Paul to write this letter. Finally, we must be careful to interpret the verse or verses before us in context. Recall those three verses I read from 1 Corinthians 11. Did you know that I only read verses 3, then 8 and 9, leaving out the very reason why Paul gave this directive to the church? At that time, the verses I left out talk about head coverings, which is an issue that Paul addresses nowhere else. Suffice to say that he's trying to set in order a church that is in disarray, a problem noted throughout this letter. Corinth, a very cosmopolitan and decadent city, no doubt influenced the thinking and behavior of Gentiles who responded to the gospel Paul preached. As a means to bring order out of disorder, he applies a familiar practice for them in a new way, citing Genesis to support his directive. For those interested in knowing more about this particular passage, a wealth of resources are available online. My purpose in this series is not to do an in-depth study of any particular Bible passage, but to understand what the Scripture says as a whole about a woman's place. There is more to come, including a return to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15, and, of course, what Jesus said. Three questions for your consideration. First, thus far, how has this series affected your perspective of a woman's place? Second, in what ways has your background affected your view of a woman's place? And third, for you, how important 
or unimportant is this particular topic and why? 